0: Uh, If you would, turn with me to the book of Romans, where we'll be studying in our time as I have the privilege and joy to fill in for Pastor Dan. I actually was preparing and studying another text for a majority of this week, and uh, just in the providence of the Lord and how the end of the week turned out, Um, saving that text for another time, and uh, we'll be in, in the book of Romans And uh, I do want to make mention of a few uh, joys and sorrows in the life of our body in prayer in just a moment, but what I'd like to do is read Romans 8, and then go to the Lord together in prayer. So find the 8th chapter of Romans in your copy of God's Word, and follow along with me as I read verses 1 to 4, which will be... Our text of study this morning. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we come before You as those desiring to be fed with the Word of God, with the true manna, words that come from your mouth, inspired by men, yet given by the Spirit, inspired by you as you penned these words to the Apostle Paul all those years ago, and yet we come in this Sunday, this summer in 2022, needing the truths of liberation. And justification and encouragement that come from the gospel. Father, it's our joy as we gather week by week to offer you praise, to hear from you, to humble ourselves before you, to function as the body of Christ. That is our desire. Even as we pray that, Lord, we think of joys and sorrows in the life of this body over this last week. As many have prayed for Nancy's endurance and her passing this last week, Lord, we grieve. Burdened by the the fight that many face with cancer, um, burdened with the realities of grief in a fallen world, we grieve together, in particular, Father, with the the family and, and ask for your protection and your comfort to Daniel, her son. and We know that in this world, we're not without trouble. We know that within this church family, we're not without trouble. But we come to Christ and uh, find a, a sense of strength and hope so that we don't grieve without hope. Father, we also thank you for the joy this week of a young family being brought together in marriage. And we do pray for... Dave and Emma Walker and their new life together, what a joy to celebrate with them. We ask that you would watch over that family as you build them up and mature them in Christ's likeness and in a journey of marriage together over the coming years. We ask that you'd be glorified in it, that even as they are moving out of state and off to college and out of this assembly, we, we ask for your hand of blessing on them. Father, again, we request that you speak to us through your word, that as we study this um, wonderful, wonderful gospel paragraph, that we would be encouraged by it. And that we'd give you all the glory and thanks that you deserve. In Jesus' name. Amen. The state of Idaho has executed 29 men. 26 hanged and three lethally injected. These are people sentenced to death for their crimes. I wonder, can you imagine what it would be to be in their shoes to hear perhaps Idaho jurors coming together on account saying, We find the accused guilty. And the judge, I hereby sentence you to death. And friends, that kind of sobering, morbid thought pales in comparison to what every unrepentant sinner will hear when they stand before God as their creator, as their judge, as their Lord. Condemnation. Look at it. It's what makes this text so sweet is that backdrop of condemnation. Because what does verse 1 say? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's a grim, sober backdrop that makes this text so sweet. Maybe you have Romans 8.1 underlined in your Bible. Because this cherished passage, it speaks about a remedy for a shocking and an inescapable problem. And that is the threat of divine justice... And judgment on human sin. And friends, through his work on the cross, Jesus Christ has completely, permanently, irreversibly, finally removed condemnation. Our Lord, he said, as he hung there, he said, it is what? It's finished. By grace alone, God has delivered believers From condemnation. There's no condemnation in Christ. That's the focus of this paragraph. It's a celebration of Jesus' death. His death that delivers from sin. But before diving into the details of this paragraph, let's remember just a little bit about the context of the book of Romans. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul in around A.D. 57. It would have been on his third missionary journey where he spent significant time ministering to the Ephesians. He spent years, as it turns out, training and upbuilding the assembly in Ephesus while he corresponded some with Corinth, writing the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians and writing the letter to the Romans. He had not yet been to Rome as he writes this letter to the Romans, but he wrote it for two main purposes. The first purpose that he wrote the letter to the Romans was to sort of pave the way for the visit that he would take. He eventually gets to Rome. He's on house arrest in Rome by the end of Acts. But when he writes this letter, he's not yet visited. And he desires to make Rome, if possible, a further base for ministry even out as far west as Spain. And so one purpose to the letter of Romans is to establish contact for perhaps future opportunity in gospel ministry with the Romans and beyond. But there's a second purpose to this letter, and that is that Paul wrote the letter of Romans to give a full and detailed statement of the gospel. You know this if you've read the letter of Romans. It's filled with theological argumentation and Really a mounting, heaping explanation of the righteousness of God offered to sinners in the gospel. Good news. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation for all who believe, to Jew and Greek. In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And faithful, humble hearts down the ages have rightly interpreted and stewarded this book, recognizing that the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is not merely his righteousness to vindicate himself in judgment, but it is the righteousness offered to sinners by grace, credited through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel, the righteousness of God at work in the gospel Outlined, outlined in Romans. And so, Romans chapter 8, from verse 1, no condemnation, to verse 35, no separation. This is a chapter that swells like an orchestra with confidence and beauty and hope that we have in Christ. Hope in Christ. And so, what we have this morning before us in these verses are three aspects of the believer's deliverance. Three aspects. In which the believer, in which we are delivered by Jesus' death. And we'll note them as we come to them. The first is the pronouncement of no condemnation. The pronouncement. And so the pronouncement of the believer's deliverance is simply those words, no condemnation. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a sweet truth. Grace through faith in Christ means that condemnation from God's law, friend, it's gone forever. It's dealt with. Outside of God's own gracious provision of righteousness, outside of his offer of mercy and forgiveness, sinners like me, sinners like you, we stood under condemnation. That's a key word in this paragraph. The, the book of John puts it this way. John three thirty six, that says that we abide under the wrath of God. Or how about the language of the psalmist, Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, were to count iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? You think about that, friend, this morning? If the Lord were to count iniquities, would you be able to stand? The psalmist goes on, he says, but with you there's forgiveness that you might be feared. See, because we are sinners by nature, by birth, by choice, by character, we stood under condemnation. We're sinners because of what we've done. We're sinners because of what we've not done. We're sinners because of what we've said, what we've thought, what we've desired in our hearts. Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way, by nature, children of wrath. And yet, look at Romans 8.1. What does it say? There is no condemnation. I want to point out just a few observations in this verse Notice the flow of thought, and there's a key word there that begins this chapter, and it's the word therefore. There is therefore, or my translation is pulls it out front. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Romans 8 is a conclusion. You say a conclusion of what? And I think there's a twofold answer to that question. Therefore concludes the tension and the struggle of Romans 7 14 and following, where Paul is saying, who will deliver me from my sin? The thing I do, I don't want to do. The thing that I, that I don't do, I should do. Help me. He comes in verse 1 of chapter 8, looking vertically to the no condemnation status. But friends, there's more than just a resolution of the tension in chapter 7. I believe that Romans 8, 1, more broadly, seems to recall the whole argument about salvation in Christ so far in the book. You see, with Christ coming, there was a new age, not of future promise, but of present fulfillment. There is now, isn't that what your Bible says? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That he's come, that righteousness that the law testified to, Romans chapter 3, testified to it, but it wasn't found in it. That righteousness has now come. It's righteousness that's in Christ So that we now stand not in Adam, but in Jesus. We have not death, but life. We have not condemnation, but justification in the gospel. And there is another sort of high peak in the book of Romans in which Paul has already hinted at all of these themes. Turn backwards to Romans chapter 5. And you'll see this argument that has been building even through Romans already Romans 5 says it gives sort of the explanation how can a righteous God declare wicked people to be righteous isn't God violating his own rules (laughs) chapter 5 says no no we are declared righteous in Christ and we are in a no condemnation status because we are in the Lord look at look at Romans 5 verse 12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered through the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then he's gonna pick up his argument. He actually doesn't do so until later on in this chapter. He goes on a on a rabbit trail. But look at verse 16. He says, He says, The gift is not like that which came through the, the one that sinned, that's Adam. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the transgression, resulting in condemnation. There's our word. So condemnation came through Adam, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. And really, it's pulled together at verse 18. He says, so then, conclusion, through the transgression of one, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, he's talking about Christ, there resulted justification and life for all men. So Paul concludes chapter 5, at least, saying that there's no condemnation for believers. Why? Because we're in Christ. We're in Christ. And in fact, if we were to just sort of follow the argument that goes Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, in chapter 5, he's saying that we have a new identity. It's that we're in Christ. In chapter 6, he says we have a new relationship to sin, that we are dead to sin. In chapter 7, he says that we have a new relationship to the law, that we are not under law. And now, therefore, in light of that, Romans 8 1, there is therefore no condemnation. So there's a logical connector, there's an inference, a conclusion. But second, maybe another observation about verse 1 here is just those words. No condemnation. The word no is actually pulled out front in the, in the Greek. It's in an emphatic position, so it's, it's bold, it's underlined, if you will. And the word no means not any. There is not any condemnation. There, there will not, God cannot condemn those who he has counted righteous because his justice has been meted out at the cross of Christ. Look at your Bible. It's not less condemnation. It's not we're hedging bets, fingers crossed. There is no condemnation. What a wonderful, sweet thing. The cup of God's wrath, Psalm 75, verse 8, has been poured out to the very last drop. There's none left for you, child of God. No condemnation. What God is doing here is he's giving us a courtroom picture When you see that word condemnation, again, it can be contrasted with justification. That's courtroom language. And if we were to just sort of explain what condemnation is, it has two parts. To be condemned, uh, on the one hand, means to receive a guilty verdict. And secondly, to be sentenced with a penalty. It's both verdict and penalty. That's condemnation. And you see what Paul's saying here. He says, there's no penalty for you. There's no guilty verdict. What a a balm to our soul. We're forgiven. Isaiah 118 says it this way, though your sins are as scarlet, it gives a picture, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be what? White as snow. Psalm 103 verse 12, the psalmist declares, as far as the east is from the west, so has he removed our transgressions from us? And yet, the joy of this promise is easily muddled by lies or bad thinking or uh, unbiblical thinking. For example, some, ha- some have taught and some see forgiveness as counting up until you get saved. So I sin, I sin, I sin, I sin. I get saved, I know Christ, and now I better, I better never sin again. That's not what the Bible teaches Christ didn't just pay for our sins past. He paid for all of our sins past, present, and future. Colossians 2 puts it that way, that he's nailed all of our sins to the cross. How about this one? You may be reasoned this way. I've, I've, I've had to struggle through this. You say, I still sin as a believer. I'm supposed to ask for forgiveness. Does that mean I'm, I'm still condemned? I'm under sin? I'm under sin? Pastor Tom Pennington was really helpful for me in thinking about this, Um, in describing uh, two rooms, two rooms, the courtroom, and, and I can say to you this morning, everyone sitting in this sanctuary is in one of two rooms, the courtroom of God's justice or the living room of a father by whom we've been forgiven. Think of two rooms. Before salvation, you're in the courtroom, the courtroom of divine justice. And every time you sinned or I sinned, the gavel came down. Guilty, 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 condemned, condemned, condemned. And when, by grace through faith in Christ alone, you humbled yourself, you asked for forgiveness. God made you new, He wiped your slate clean. The gavel came down, the legal pronouncement was made, not as not guilty. Not as innocent, but as righteous with the very righteousness of Christ. And you forever left the courtroom of God's justice. Never to go back. Never to go back under the threats of divine justice. The Judge of Judges, capital J, dealt with your case, believer, counting you righteous. Righteous with the very righteousness of Christ. But what happened when that judge did that? He stepped ...out from behind his legal bench... ...and with love and pity in his eye and his heart... ...he put his arm around you... ...and he said, I'm going to adopt you... ...and I'm going to take you into my home... ...and you are to live with me... ...as a son or daughter. And now, today, when you sin... ...you sin as a believer. And you don't say, oh, judge... ...judge me again, take me to court. No. What do you do? You go to your father's living room... ...and you say, Father... I've grieved you. I've sinned against your grace. I know who I am in Christ. But it's not, judge, forgive me legally. No, you go to him. You say, I've shamed the family name. I desire to please you. I know that what you have said of me is true of me, that I'm, that I'm, that I'm born again in the Lord, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Before Christ, it's legal forgiveness in the courtroom of justice. After Christ, it's relational family forgiveness in the living room of our Father. There's one more observation I want to make before moving on. Verse one. Not everyone is sitting in the living room. What does the text say? Not everyone has this status of no condemnation, but only those who are what? Who are where? Who are in Christ. Who are in Christ. This is a, a favorite term of Paul. Paul to describe being a believer, being a Christian. To be in Christ is to be saved, it's to be joined to Him. So that Paul says, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. My life has been crucified with Christ. I'm one with Him. By faith, I've been joined to Him. This living union, this enjoyment that we have being brought into oneness with our Lord. The death that He died, He died for our sin. The life that He lives, we now live with Him. A union with the Lord Jesus Christ. But we must be in Him. You know, sometimes people, they want the blessing of forgiveness. They want the blessing of heaven. They want the blessing of no condemnation. But they don't come to to Christ, to the fountain, to the one place where it can be received. And so I ask you this morning, look at this filled room. Are you, are you in Christ this morning? Certainly there are people among us where you haven't trusted Christ. He's not your Lord. You haven't gone to him. You haven't surrendered your life. This, this, this promise, this paragraph, friends, it's so good. It's so sweet. But it's not for you if you're not in Christ. Was there a time, friend, when you heard the gospel? Not just the information, but the gospel truth that came home to your heart. <laughs> and the invisible hand of our Lord put his hand on you with conviction, with love, and the Christ that you were once indifferent to Became a treasure in your thinking. You no longer yawned at him. But you, you, you fled to him. You fled to his mercy, to his goodness. Are you in Christ this morning? You're not in Christ by being in a Christian family. You're not in Christ by being married to a Christian spouse. This promise is sweet, but it's to those who are in Christ, by grace, through faith, in Christ. Well, that is the pronouncement. Sweet, isn't it? No condemnation. The pronouncement of deliverance. Second, we could consider the basis of our deliverance. The basis of our deliverance. And it's very simply this. On, on the same sort of flow of thought, the basis of our deliverance is freedom through Christ. Freedom through Christ. Look at uh, your Bible. It's very clear. It says in Romans 8, verse 2, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So number one, we saw the pronouncement. No condemnation. Second, we see the basis of our deliverance. That is freedom through Christ. Freedom through Christ. And we could say a couple things about this freedom, even as we think about verse 2 there. I think I put this in your outline. Is that we're freed from the law. Or you might say we're freed from the penalty of the law. You guys see that when it talks about how he has set us free from the law of sin and death? And I would say like verse 1 that deals with our ...our our condemnation and our justification... ...so verse 2 is dealing with the penalty of sin. Now when I say that, I understand... ...the Bible teaches that the power of sin is broken. Romans chapter 6 even teaches that. I just don't think that that's what this verse is saying... ...because in particular... ...that past tense completed verb. Look in the Bible. Look verse 2. It's that main verb. It's the law of the spirit of life... ...has set you free. And the Greek tense has this idea of... ...once for all action. A freedom from the penalty that's accomplished at salvation, the penalty of death. Jesus bore it. So verse 2, we could say it this way, is about our justification. Pastor Dan mentioned this many times as we went through the book of Galatians. I've shared this truth before from uh, this pulpit, but we need to understand when we talk about justification, it's not just a... a, it's not just a theology word. This is a precious, precious truth that, for, child of God, you must understand it. You must understand it and hold it and grasp it by faith. What is justification? Justification is an instantaneous legal pronouncement where our sins are counted to Christ, Christ's righteousness is counted to us, that's the essence, it's a it's a double crediting, a double counting, a double imputing. Our sins are counted to Christ. Christ's righteousness is counted to us. And the gavel of heaven's courtroom comes down and says, righteous, we're declared righteous in his sight. That's the truth of justification. And if you want to be rock solid in your, in your identity, your position in Christ, you must, you must know this truth. You must enjoy this truth and love this truth. This is the, at the heart and center of the gospel to be justified in the Lord. That's what he's talking about in verse 1 and 2. Now, look at verse 2 again. He uses the word law two times. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. We're freed from the law of sin by the law of the Spirit. You say, Paul, what is that? What are you talking about? We're freed from the law by the law. Well, this, this word law, namas, is is a flexible word. It can be used for the law of the land, Acts 18, 13. It's often used for the law of Moses. It is sometimes used for the whole of the Old Testament or of the word of God, the law of God. But you could say it in the most basic sense that the law, this word law, it means rule or authority. Rule or authority. You could say it this way. We're set free from the authority of sin and the death that it brings. We're set free from that authority by the authority of the Spirit who brings life. Or you could say that we're set free from God's requirement. That's another way to think helpfully about the law. God's requirement rendered us guilty. You know why? You don't keep God's requirement. Neither do I. And so the Spirit set us free from the authority of Sin from the requirement of God's law that, though good, rendered us guilty because we're not. Think about it this way. The authority of indwelling sin, it drags a person down to death like the law of gravity, but the life-giving spirit becomes then the power of resurrection life within a child of God. One evil thought of superiority... One angry flash of entitlement. One hateful moment of contempt. One private relationship of nurtured jealousy. One indulgent look at pornography. It renders us guilty. And what this text is saying is we've been freed from the law's demand for our death. We've been freed. Our sins before a holy God... They're significant. His standard is perfection. And think about it. In this room, every single one of us is probably vented in sinful anger. We've, we've told more lies than we'd be able to recollect or count. So that we look at what the Bible says, the wage of sin is death, and yet I can tell you on the authority of Scripture this morning, friend, if you're in Christ, Romans 8.1, you're not under condemnation. Romans 8.2 God has set you free. He set you free. Look at verse 3. He goes on. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through flesh, God did. The law of sin and death, verse 2, the requirement, particularly the the law of Moses that showed us our sin, he calls it here a law that was weak and unable to save. Do You see that in verse 3? For the, what the law could not do, weak as it was through flesh. What's he talking about? He's talking about our flesh. <laughs> the law itself is holy. The law itself is just. The law itself is perfect. He said all of those things in Romans 7. The problem is the material that the law has to work with. And you know what it is? It's us, our human flesh. And the law comes to us, and what do we want to do? We want to break it. And we have broke it. And so the law, weakened as it was by flesh, could not do something. But what does verse 3 say? God did that something. God did what the law could never do. Think about this, friends. The, The law shows us our need. The law shows us our bankruptcy. The law sort of brings us like a tutor to Christ. The law brings universal accountability. The law reflects God's own heart. The law reflects God's own righteousness. But the law cannot save The law has never saved because it cannot save. And what it could not do, verse 3, what does it say? God did. God did what the law could never do. You can underline that. God did it. The hope of religion is in law. The hope of Christianity is in God. God did it. He saves. This is essentially the gospel in a nutshell. What our morality could never achieve, God has done. What our behavior could never accomplish, God has accomplished. God can achieve. God has attained it. He has done it. Uh, One pastor said it well. He said, when it comes to the law of God, you've got three options. Number one, keep God's law perfectly and earn eternal life. I wouldn't bet on that option. But you can keep God's law perfectly and earn eternal life. You can't. The Bible says no one does. Option one. Option two, fail to meet a standard of perfect love and suffer under eternal condemnation. By the way, what do you have to do for for this to happen? Nothing. We're already headed there. Or three, place your faith and your confidence and your boast and your trust in Jesus Christ. The one substitute the one solution his righteousness his life his death the only existing solution for our great problem and we stand where verse one no condemnation God did it verse three says how did he do it he goes on look at verse three the uh, the second half of the verse he says God did it sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin he that is God condemned sin in the flesh it's a complicated set of phrases, but we'll work through it here. We already saw that we're freed from the law, or we're freed from the penalty of law. Verse uh, 2 and 3 make a, a second observation for us, and that, that's, that we're freed by a substitute. We're freed by a substitute. So if you're taking notes, we're freed from the law, but we're also freed by a substitute. That's what verse 3 articulates there. It's taking us deeper into Paul's logic. You can see it right there in your Bible. Now, note just a couple things about this verse. We see the sinless and yet um, true humanity of Jesus. Look at verse 3. Paul's walking a tightrope here, a theological tightrope. He doesn't just say that God sent his son in the flesh, but in sinful flesh. You guys see that? So he's emphasizing the corruption of our fallen flesh. And yet he doesn't say that Jesus came in sinful flesh. That would be to say that Jesus was a sinner. But he said that Jesus came in what? What? The likeness of sinful flesh. What is he doing here? On the one side, Paul wants to show just how closely Jesus was associated with sin. And on the other hand, he wants to retain and maintain the fact that in that close association, Jesus was not a sinner. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus was perfectly righteous. Born of a virgin, in him there is no sin, 1 John 3. And so consider that. Even when Jesus exposed himself to the ruin of the curse, to the power of sin, to the ruin of sin, he paid the ultimate penalty and price for sin, and yet he wasn't enveloped and encased by the corruption and contamination of sin. He is able to stand, friends, as the perfect go-between. The perfect substitute between God and men. Notice how verse 3 says it. My translation says that he, was, um, that he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. Uh, the ESV and the King James just say for sin. Uh, but you may have a note in your Bible, and rightly so, because this phrase, for sin, uh, is used 44 times. And it's used to describe a sin offering. He, he, that's why the Nasb is translated the way it has. That he was an offering for sin. This is found frequently in the Book of Hebrews, and it's the idea that Jesus, um, Jesus' death was not an accident. Jesus' death was not random. Jesus' death was not uh, the culmination of, of political, social issues and power play in the first century. No, Jesus' death was a spiritual offering for our sin. Jesus died in our place for our sin, and Paul gets even more specific when he said, look at verse three. He says, "God condemned sin in the flesh when He sent Jesus." There's kind of a word play here when He sent Jesus because he condemned it in this, uh, He condemned sin in the flesh. This is a little bit tricky. What is he saying? Flesh often refers to our, our inclination towards sin, our inner rebellion. Uh, it's the word... Uh, If you have an an NIV, this word is translated sinful nature. It's the bent, it's the inclination, a favorite word by Paul. Sometimes the word is used just for the physical body, often used in Paul to talk about our inclination, our inner bent towards self and sin. And here's what he does in verse, there's a word play, It's, it's tricky. He basically says, the sin of our flesh, meaning that bent towards rebellion, was condemned in the Son's flesh, meaning his physical body. It's a wordplay. Do you see that? Look at at the verse again. The sin of our flesh, meaning our corrupt nature, was condemned in the Son's flesh, meaning his physical body. He condemned sin in the flesh. He's talking about the the Lord there. And you see the picture. Our sin punished in his body. This is what the Scripture teaches. So that every time that we say, we've mentioned this before, every time that we say, I'm blessed, we remember because he was cursed. Every time that we say, I have forgiveness and mercy, we remember it's because justice was satisfied at the cross. Every time that we come back to Romans 8, 1, and we should come back here, shouldn't we, beloved? Every time we do, and we read no condemnation, we remember that it was because he condemned sin in the very life of the savior. So it was dealt with on the cross. The father pronounced a guilty verdict And he meted out a criminal punishment, condemnation. Well, what have we seen? Those in Christ are no longer under condemnation, verse one. Because they've been freed from sin, verse two. On the basis of Jesus' death, verse three. Now this gets interesting. So that we now fulfill the law. Look at verse four. So bring us to our final truth. Verse 4 says, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in Christ. Is that what it says? Might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 4, oh sorry, let's see. Uh, Third third aspect of the believer's deliverance. Number one, the pronouncement. Number two, the basis. Number three, the purpose. It's that so that, that in order that. And the purpose of our deliverance is true fulfillment of God's law. True fulfillment of God's law. Verse four gives the purpose of our deliverance. True fulfillment of God's law. And it starts with that word in order that. You can underline that. That's a purpose statement. That's a result statement. And what he's saying is that the purpose of of our no condemnation status, the purpose of the condemnation of sin in the life of the Lord Jesus, it wasn't so that we would just sit and soak and say, I'm a Christian. It wasn't that we would just rest in eternal life. No, our salvation is for the purpose of glorifying God, of living for him. We might summarize it this way. The purpose of our salvation is obedient love, that we would know our Lord, that we would walk with him, that we would love him. Obedient love. Jesus said it this way, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 15. Glance at verse 4 again. Notice that there's a singular, the word requirement is singular, so that the requirement, not requirements of the 613 commands of the law of Moses, but the requirement, singular, of the law might be fulfilled in us. Uh, This is not obedience to all the commands of the old covenant, but the summarizing totality of the law, which is now re-articulated as the new covenant standard of obedient love. That's the succinctful sort of summarizing totality. You can see it. Look at Romans 13. Flip the page over. Romans 13, verse 8. Makes this helpful for us. We're not under law, we're under the new covenant. And yet, the summation of the law and a description of new covenant obedience is this, is this love principle. Look at verse 8 of chapter 13, Romans, 8, Romans 13, 8. It says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Similar language. For you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's why I said obedient love, this wraps its arms kind of around this thought. Verse 10 summarizes, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Love for God and love for others, I would say, is the requirement, single, of the law. It's the essence of new covenant obedience. Again, this is not the basis of no condemnation. This is not the ground. This is not why we are not under wrath. It's the fruit. It's the result. It's the so that. It's the purpose. Does that make sense? So key. So key to see that distinction. What does it mean, though, I'm going to ask one more interpretive question. This is a tightly packed text, isn't it? One more question. Let's think about this. What does he mean when he says in verse 4 that the law is fulfilled by those who walk according to the Spirit? And be careful. Don't jump in your mind and in your thinking to Galatians 5, because that will confuse us. Galatians 5 is an exhortation to walk by the Spirit. You know how many commands there are? You know how many exhortations there are in Romans chapter 8? All those 39 verses? Zero commands. Zero commands in Romans 8. So what I'm saying, friends, is this. Galatians 5 is exhorting the believer's behavior. Romans 8 is describing Christian identity. Of course, those are related, but you see the difference. One is an exhortation to walk by the Spirit, a command to walk by the Spirit. This text is a description of believers as those who do walk by the Spirit. In other words, this doesn't make us a Christian. It shows that we are one. He's describing being a Christian. You could read verse 4 this way. So that the requirement of the law is fulfilled in believers who live as believers, not as unbelievers. Because he goes on verse 5 and he says that, the, uh, that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And he's talking about unbelievers. And those who are according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. And he's talking about believers. He's giving this dichotomy. What I mean is this walking according to the Spirit, Romans 8 4, is to be a believer. That's how he's using this phrase. And God's ultimate purpose in sending his son is not just that we would have a forgiven status, but that we would function, that we would be believers, that we would function as believers, that we would live in that so-that purpose, that we would live in obedient love and desire him and fear him and know him as our God. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, same idea, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's the same thing God's Word is saying in 1 Peter 2.24. So brother, sister, are you living the so that purpose of your salvation? Salvation is not a sit and soak. It's not a status, not a Facebook status. Evangelical. It's not that. Our salvation is, is to be enjoyed. It's to be experienced. And that experience fulfills God's purpose for our lives. To know him. To walk with him. To live in obedient love as he becomes our supreme treasure. So let me wind down this morning with these reminders. Don't allow yourself to be robbed of the joy and the security of verse 1. But don't excuse yourself from the implication of verse 4. Don't Let yourself be robbed from this sweet text, child of God, in verse 1. Don't don't allow yourself to be robbed from the sweetness and the goodness of verse 1 and following. But also don't excuse yourself from the implication of verse 4. If you're a Christian, you're free. You are free from the law. You're free from the threat of divine justice and death. It's right for us to celebrate, to give thanks to our God To go to him in the living room recognizing we're beloved. That he has no desire to condemn us. That he loves us in Christ with the very love that he has for the Son. It's right for us to claim that truth. To enjoy it. To go back to it. And preach it to our hearts again and again and again. So that we don't believe our emotions. So that we don't believe what people say. But we believe the gospel. But we could say this too. Every person is either lost or saved. Every person is either in Christ or not in Christ. Every person is either under condemnation or has the blessing of justification. Friend, that's true of you this morning. It's true of us this morning as we gather. Is there anyone sitting in this room? Where this sweet promise, isn't this a good paragraph? Where this promise, it's not for you because you haven't come to the Lord. You haven't surrendered your will to Him, bowed the knee. You haven't trusted in Christ. Is there anyone here where that's you? Any young people here? You haven't trusted in Christ. You've been around church, but you haven't, you haven't given your life to the Lord. You haven't turned from yourself, your sin, your rebellion, and turned only to Jesus and received his wonderful forgiveness. Turn to Christ. Come to him. What prevents you from coming to him? This paragraph, friends, is awesome. It's amazing. But men and women, they refuse it. They stumble over it because of pride. Because of a refusal to acknowledge who they are and what they are before the Lord. Don't let that be you this morning. If you don't know where you stand for eternity with the Lord, that is the most pressing question in your life. And so come to him. You personally, come. So that none who sit here today would say at the end, I never heard, I never knew, I never was told. Friend, you are under condemnation outside of Christ, but in Christ you are under no condemnation. Let's pray.